Good morning. My name is Stephen Jones. I am the SALT director here at Candeo, and it's awesome to be with you all. So we have two kids, and next week we're going to have our third, which is a lot of fun, very exciting. So our daughter, Isla, is three now, and one of the best things about three-year-olds is that they're potty trained. It is just fantastic. Yeah, I got an amen. There we go. Let's get those amens started right now. Potty trained. It's great. But we're going to have more diapers here next week, which will be fine. Here's one of the things about a three-year-old being potty trained, though, that we are experiencing is they get super excited about whatever they're playing, what they're doing, and distracted. They don't want to stop playing. And what happens? Oh, yes. Thank you. All right. I love this. An accident. An accident happens two weeks ago. Uh, Isla is playing, not focused. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, she jumps up, sprints to the bathroom, starts banging on the door. Let me in. Let me in. Let me in. Someone was using the restroom, and so the accident happens. And so I sit Isla down. I encourage her. You know, I'm like, hey, okay, we're going we're gonna to figure this out. Like, don't worry. No big deal. We'll get you cleaned up. We'll keep working on it. But then I said this. I was like, Isla, what happened? She said, well, someone was in the bathroom. And then I had an accident. I said, yeah, that, that's true. But let's think. Isla, you have probably known for 20 minutes now that you need to go potty right? She's like, uh, yeah. I'm like, and you ignored all the warning signs, all the warning signs. So what appears to you like all of a sudden out of nowhere, I have to go to the bathroom and someone else is in the restroom and I have the accident. It's actually the problem was that you ignored all the warning signs. Now, I don't know if she comprehended that. We're going to keep working on it. There have been, you know, a few more accidents. So we'll keep working on that. But here's the reality and as obvious as that is, as cute as that is, we do the exact same thing as a three-year-old being potty trained. So many times when we have a moment of failure, an accident, or reflect and realize that we have sinned, we think when asked, what was the problem? We think, well, in the moment, I couldn't resist. In the moment, I gave in. In the moment, I broke down. In the moment, I failed. But just like Isla, we don't realize that that is the moment that you are banging on a bathroom door, but have completely ignored all of the warning signs that led you up to that moment of failure, that moment of sin. What we're going to see this morning in the book of Proverbs is a story of temptation, a story of sexual sin where there is a fool a man who thinks that in the moment of sin, he broke down and failed. But as we actually begin to dig into the story, we will see that he ignored all of the warning signs leading up to this moment. So our story is in Proverbs 7. It is a father telling his sons about the nature of sin. You get this proactive dad teaching his boys about how sin works and what it looks like. And here is the story that this dad tells his sons. It starts in verse 6. He says this, At the window of my house, I looked through my lattice. I saw among the inexperienced, I noticed among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Crossing the street near her corner, he strolled down the road to her house at twilight, in the evening, in the dark of night. A woman came to meet him, dressed like a prostitute, having a hidden agenda. She's loud and defiant. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the streets, now in the squares, she lurks at every corner. 
She grabs him and kisses him. She brazenly says to him, I've made fellowship offerings. Today I've fulfilled my vows. So I came out to meet you, to search for you, and I found you. I've spread coverings on my bed, richly colored linen from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of lovemaking until morning. Let's feast on each other's love. My husband isn't home. He went on a long journey. He took a bag of silver with him, and he'll come home at the time of the full moon. She seduces him with her persistent pleading. She lures him with her flattering talk. He follows her impulsively, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer bounding towards a trap, until an arrow pierces its liver, like a bird darting into a snare. He doesn't know it will cost him his life. Now, sons, listen to me. Pay attention to the words from my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray onto her paths. For she has brought many down to death, and her victims are countless. Her house is the road to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. This is a story of a fool who fails sexually who commits adultery with this woman. And when we first read it, kind of like what I've been prepping us for, we might think, oh man, the moment of failure had to be verse 21 or 22. When he's in bed with her, when she seduces him, when he follows her impulsively, that's got to be the moment of failure when all of this culminates. But as we dig in, we realize that that is the banging on the bathroom door moment but there were actually all of these warning signs that led up to this moment. So what I want to do today is look at this passage and see as this father teaches his son, first, what is the path of sin? Second, then what are the promises of sin? And then third, what are its consequences? And as we work through these questions, working through the passage, I want you to continue to ask yourself, where am I losing the battle? Where are you losing the battle with your sexual sin? So the first one, the path of sin. This father begins to describe to his boys the nature of sin and that it takes a path. He starts in verse 6. He says, I looked at the window of my house. I looked through my lattice. And here's the first red flag, the first battle that's lost. I saw among the inexperienced, I noticed among the youths. Who is surrounding this guy? Who's the loudest influence is in this man's life? The inexperienced, the youths. He is surrounded by people who, are, who lack maturity, who lack godliness. The friends that he is surrounding himself are inexperienced, youthful. That is who is most influencing him, and that is a battle lost, his friends. But then it goes on, it says, a, a, a young man lacking sense. This guy had no wisdom. He was a fool. He had denied the subtle shifts in his character that had begun to take, a, take place. He had no sense of urgency to deal with these small ways that his character was slipping. A man who doesn't have godly friends. He is a man who lacks sense. There are character flaws that he is ignoring. And what does he do? Verse 8, red flag. Crossing the street near her corner. What is the battle that he loses in this moment? 
he is heading towards an area of known temptation. He is heading towards her corner. He knows that this has been an area that consistently tempts him and he crosses the street towards the corner. A known temptation. Now you might think, whoa, like I, he hasn't sinned or I haven't sinned even though I crossed the street towards temptation. But the reality is if you consistently put your pl- yourself in a place of known temptation, sooner or later there will be failure. And not only does he cross near her corner, look at the demeanor by which he does. Battle lost. He strolled down the road towards her house. How's he walking? He's strolling. I don't know about you, but when I stroll, I'm on a beach. I'm relaxed. My guard is down. I'm just strolling. And it's great. And I kind of do this with my arms, I suppose. I don't know. But I stroll. There's just this casual walking. My guard is down. There's no vigilance. It's not a battlefield kind of mentality where I'm taking precautions. It's strolling. And here this fool is strolling into a known area of temptation, a known area of susceptibility, no vigilance, no precaution, no urgency, no preparation on how he's going to enter into this environment. There is strolling. I went on a work trip this weekend. It was three hours away. I was completely alone. Natalie is 12 12 days is her C-section, so she couldn't come with me. I'm completely alone in another city. And that is a susceptible area to be in. That is vulnerable. Do you think I strolled casually into that environment? No. I told Natalie, here is my plan this weekend to walk with integrity. I told several close friends, here is my plan, the, pre- the precautions I'm taking, the, the, th- the ways I'm going to be vigilant this weekend in order to maintain integrity. There was no strolling into an environment that is known temptation where I would be vulnerable. Not only that, the battles continue to be lost. Verse 9, at twilight, in the evening, in the dark of night. There's a reality that this particular time, this man denied how vulnerable he was to sexual temptation. If you were to look at the, the times that you fail with habitual sin or sexual sin, you will begin to notice a pattern. There are certain times of the day even where you find yourself more susceptible. The dark of night, twilight, the evening. And he is in denial of all these things, ignoring the red flags, ignoring the small battles he's losing. And then verse 10, he begins to interact with this woman. A woman came to meet him dressed like a prostitute with hidden agendas. Now what's the battle lost in that moment? What's the red flag he's not paying attention to? Her external appearance should have tipped him off that danger was looming. There was something about her outward appearance that should have indicated to him, stop, there's danger, pause. But how often do we ignore the outward things that should tip us off that danger is looming? We ignore the thumbnail that should indicate to us what kind of website that article is going to take us to. We ignore the cover of the movie that should tip us off as to what sort of content will be in that movie. And not only does he ignore her outward appearance, he then ignores her reputation. Verse 11, she is loud and defiant. Her feet do not stay at home. In this community, this woman had a reputation. And he was oblivious to it and ignored the reality that this should also indicate to him that temptation was coming. And yet we do this all the time. 
How often do you casually leave an app on your phone that is, has a reputation? How often do you go to places that have a reputation to put people in tempting situations, but we just casually stroll into those environments? Or casually leave that on my phone? He's ignoring the warning signs. Verse 12, the last warning sign he ignored. Now in the street, now in the squares, she lurks at every corner. He was in denial to the extent that the temptation was prevalent. Temptation was all around him. Temptation was accessible. He was unaware of how, how much proximity he had to temptation, and he was in denial of that. So we might think, oh man, this guy lost the battle in the bed. But what we begin to realize is that there were thousands of small battles that this man lost long before the bedroom. That this dad is looking at his boys and he says, don't think that this man lost the battle when this woman seduces him. No, he lost the battle all the way back with who was influencing him. Where are you losing the battle? You do not walk in perfect holiness and integrity on Tuesday and on Wednesday commit an affair. It doesn't happen. You don't go from zero to 10. Instead, you go from zero to one, one to two, two to three, and all the while ignore the subtle steps towards sin that you are taking, deceived by the path of sin that it's leading you to. Where are you losing the battle? If you commit adultery, it won't be because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you had this crazy moment of failure. No, it will be because of the long path of sin and compromise that you have walked on. Where are you losing? Are you ignoring the fact that you have no godly friends? Are you ignoring the ways in which your character has begun to slip? Ignoring the unhealth present in your marriage? Ignoring the lustful fantasies that are in your mind? Ignoring the content of the movies that you are watching. Ignoring the, the inappropriate emotional connection you are beginning to form with a friend. Where is the battle you are losing? If we have any chance of fighting sin and finding lasting change in habitual sin, we have got to identify the path that we are walking towards it. But not just the path, we also need to identify second, the promises. This dad begins, as he describes this encounter he has with the, this woman, he begins to show his boys what the promises sin are offering. So he starts with this promise. She grabs him and kisses him in verse 13. And then this is the first promise she makes. I've made fellowship offerings today and I've fulfilled my vows. What is she promising here? What is she enticing him with? This is right. This is justified. This is okay. That is a promise of sin. That, hey, you deserve this for X, Y, and Z. This is okay because she is saying, I've done my religious duty, therefore we can have this sexual encounter. She's justifying the sin. Sin does this to us all the time. Your husband doesn't love you the way he ought to, so you deserve this. You're going to be married next month anyway, so go ahead. It's not physically cheating on my wife, it's just digital. 
My lustful thought isn't hurting anyone. It's just in my head. It's okay. We listen to the promise of sin that promises us a false promise that it is justified. We might say to ourselves, man, I've honored God in the ways that matter most. I can indulge in sexual sin. The promises continue. She says in verse 15, so I came out to meet you, to search for you, and I found you. What is she promising here? What is she enticing him with? She's telling him that you matter. That I search for you. I desire you. I wanted you. The vast majority of people that I meet with who fail sexually, it's not because of the pleasure that drew them in. It's not because of the excitement that drew them in. It's because for the first time in their life, somebody looked at them and said, I want you. They'd been in a marriage for a decade and had never felt seen or heard. And finally, the coworker came along who began to listen, who gave them a sense of significance. That somehow, even though you know pornography is fake, in that moment, it feels like you matter and that you are seen. This is maybe the first time that our character has ever heard someone say, I wanted you. This is the promise that he is hearing. And it's no wonder he goes to bed with her. To hear someone say, I searched for you. I've found you. I want you. This is the promise of significance that sin offers. But it's a false promise. It's there for maybe a moment, but then it's gone. What will free us from this lie? What will release this man from this lie? It's only if he knows that there was a better groom who said, I searched for you. In fact, I left heaven to search for you. And I have found you. And I love you. And I wanted you. And you matter so much to me that I would give up my life on the cross for you. Only when we know that is the significance that we have before God will we be freed from the lies of sin to find our significance in it. The lies and promises continue. Verse 16, I've spread coverings on my bed, richly colored linen from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. This is the promise of pleasure. This is going to be enjoyable. This is going to be awesome. I've made the bed ready for a sexual encounter that will be incredible. The linens are prepared. It's perfumed. It will be like no other experience that you've had. She's saying, I know you want pleasure. I know you want happiness. I know you want joy. And here it is. Here it is in my room. She promises in verse 18, love. She says, come, let's drink deeply of lovemaking until morning. Let's feast on each other's love. She wants to give him a sense of approval a sense of acceptance, the sense of love that he so longs for. This is lovemaking. This is a feast of love that you can enjoy. And similar to significance, so often it is not just the excitement and the pleasure that draws us into sin, though that can be the case, but it is often the approval and love that we so long for. And we think we can find it in the arms of someone 
She gives this promise in verse 19. My husband isn't home. He went on a long journey. He took a bag of silver with him, and he will come home at the time of the full moon. She's promising to him no consequences. This isn't going to have any repercussions. No one's going to find out. My husband's gone for a long time. No one will know. This is between you and I. One of the ironic things about this promise that one of our pastors, Dave Nee, pointed out at our elders meeting was that this story is told from the third person, meaning somebody knows. Somebody's watching from the window, from the lattice. This story is told from the third person. You will be found out. This fool has no chance to escape the consequence of sin, to, be, to not be found out. These are the false promises that she seduces him with. And unless we not only identify the patterns and pathways that lead us to sin, but also the promises that entice us, we will have no chance at seeing lasting change in our lives when it comes to sexual sin. What are the promises that your sin is offering you? What are the voices that are whispering, you can have this if you just indulge in me? Is it the promise of significance, the promise of pleasure, the promise of acceptance, the promise of no one is watching, the promise of you are justified in this? What promise is sin enticing you with? He is seduced, and then he begins to experience the consequence. Verse 21, she seduces him with her persistent pleading. She lures him with her flattering talk. He follows her impulsively, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer bounding toward a trap until an arrow pierces its liver, like a bird darting into a snare. He doesn't know it will cost him his life. Sin promises no consequence, but little does this man know it will cost him his life. An arrow will be about to pierce his liver. And look at the description even there. An ox going to the slaughter. Ox going. Deer bounding toward a trap. Bird darting. There's a progression there in the pursuit of sin. Going, bounding, darting. We think that we can control our sin, keep it under rain. We can dabble in a little bit, but it won't take us too far. No, going, bounding, darting. All the while, he doesn't realize this will cost him his life. The father continues, he says in 24, Now, sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words from my mouth. Don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray onto her paths. For she has brought many down to death. Her victims are countless. Her house is the road to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. The consequence of sin is death. The reality is God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And in that perfect design, he gave us the gift of sexuality. He gave us the gift of intimate pleasure experience between two humans. But he designed a context for that gift to be experienced. And that is the covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And what we fail to recognize is that when we reject God's design for our life and go beyond, what he, beyond the context that he has designed us to experience, the beautiful gift of sexuality, it brings death. And we might think, whoa, whoa, like... But it feels so right. I have just such a, a pure desire in my heart for that. 
It tastes so sweet. It was so enjoyable. It was so pleasurable. But what we fail to realize is that sin is sweet like candy, but kills like poison tomorrow. And that what might seem like the right thing, a good thing, an enjoyable thing, in the end will lead to the chambers of death. It will kill you. Now, if you're in Christ, this is not an eternal death, but there is a death you will experience here in this life. The death of looking at your children and explaining why you have hidden a pornography addiction for 20 years from them. That's death. The death of watching your marriage crumble because you never took the necessary steps to avoid that adulterous fare. That's death. See what the Bible calls sin. It is an agent of death, de deceptively bringing you on a path where you find yourself in a, the heat of the moment, powerless to resist. It entices you with all of these false promises, and in the end, it leads to death. That is the consequence of sexual sin. Now, if that's the consequence, what do we do? Because you might be like, man, okay, like, what do I do to either avoid this or get out of this? Like, give me some practical advice here. Well, there's five steps that I've walked a lot of people through on how to find freedom from sexual sin and really any habitual sin. And I want to walk you through these five practical steps. If you find yourself trapped or you need to avoid sexual sin, what are the five things that we can do? Uh, before I dive into them, Jake Herring and I recorded a podcast earlier this week that goes more in depth into each of these practical things. You could even listen to it on your way home. It was posted this morning uh, that gives even a more thorough explanation of these five elements, examples, things like that. So here are the five steps to fight habitual sin or fight sexual sin. First, we have to embrace our union with Christ. That is where we have to start, regularly reminding ourselves of the union that we have in Christ. Romans 8.1 says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So often we come across a passage like Proverbs 7, and it just feels condemning and heavy, and we feel the weight of our shame because of the sinful past that we bring. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. Romans 8.1, it continues in verse 11 of Romans 8, where he says that the same spirit that rose Christ Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. And he says in verse 13, by that spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body. In your union with Christ, you have no condemnation and you have access to a power that was the same power that rose Christ Jesus from the dead. Do you think your sexual sin is too strong for the power that, wrote, that defeated death? It's not. 2 Peter 1.3 says that you have everything by his divine power that pertains to life and godliness. By the power of the Spirit and the grace of Christ, you can walk in freedom and victory from sexual sin. That's where we have to start, and that's where we have to come back to every day. Second, you need to cultivate a love for God's word. Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Earlier in verse 9, it says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to the word. We have to cultivate personal holiness, personal character by having a love for God's word. Third, we need to cultivate a hatred of sin to abhor that which is evil. 
So often I find people consistently struggle with sexual sin because there was really never a time where they acknowledged what it was, how God described it. They never had a stake in the ground moment where they said, yes, this will kill me and I want to be done with it. They've never seen the consequence that it brings for them personally and that it causes outside of them and allow that to cultivate in them a hatred for sin. You've got to hate sin. You've got to say, yes, this brings death and I want to be done with it. In response to the reality of the grace I have in Christ, I want to be free from sin. Fourth, you need high stakes accountability. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says that a, a, a man's heart are like deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. Who draws it out? A man of understanding. Someone with more maturity than you. That is the high stakes part. You need someone who is further along in their faith that you trust deeply, that will walk alongside you to help you find freedom in this area. Fifth, you need to embrace radical amputation. Radical amputation. Matthew 5.30 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. You need to identify these paths, these patterns that lead you to sin and then be radical about removing them from your life to avoid temptation. Now the rebuttal might be, that, well, that kind of sounds like legalism. It's only legalism when you impose that on someone else. Your wisdom step on someone else who might not struggle the same way you do. But it's not legalism, it's wisdom. It's saying, I want to walk a life marked by holiness and integrity so much that I want to be radical about the sin in my life and avoid temptation. Avoid situations I know tempt me. And know, avoid areas I know I'm susceptible in. So if you were to come to me and begin to describe your personal struggle, I would probably ask you a series of questions. Where does this happen? When does this happen? Who do you typically hang out with that leads to this? Those are the sorts of questions I would ask. And as we begin to identify those patterns and pathways that lead to sin, we would begin to implement wisdom steps to avoid those. Those are the steps to begin to see change in your sin life to acknowledge and recognize the paths that lead you to sin, to recognize the consequence that sin brings, to recognize the promises that entice you, and then to implement these steps to begin to walk in holiness. Now at this point, after all of that, it's very likely you feel overwhelmed. It's very likely that you feel a significant burden of guilt and shame. Because here's the reality. Each one of us carries into this room today broken sexual pasts. There's not a single one of us that has a perfect track record in our sexuality. And often when we read passages like this, it brings up some of the moments that we are most ashamed of in our life. Where we either committed a sexual sin or the most painful moments in our life when a sexual sin was committed against us. And we can walk away from a text like this thinking, man, I've, I've, what hope is there for me? What can I do? There's an interesting thing in Revelations 5. In Revelations 5, 5, Jesus is referred to by two titles. Two names. The context of this scene is, is in the throne room of God. They're looking for someone who would be worthy to open the scroll. And John looks and sees this. It says in verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. 
Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, why is that intriguing to us? Why does that pique our interest on a topic like sexual sin? Well, when you go back into the Old Testament and begin looking at the stories of these two men that Jesus identifies with, Judah and David, what you begin to discover is that these are men who are marked by sexual brokenness. One of the only stories we have of Judah is Genesis 38, where Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law, who he thinks is a prostitute, impregnates her, and then when it is revealed that she's pregnant, he, he hypocritically says that we need to execute this woman for committing adultery. And then she proves that it was him who impregnated him, and he is besides himself. It is a messy, complex, broken story of hypocrisy and sexual sin. And Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. You go to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and the story that you see is King David, a man after God's own heart, on his balcony, scans his kingdom and sees a woman bathing. He summons this woman to his bedroom, sleeps with her, impregnates her. And then when he realizes that his sin will be exposed, he calls back her husband from the battlefield. But because her husband's a man of integrity, won't sleep with his wife because he feels like all of my fellow soldiers are on the field. They don't get to do this. I shouldn't do this. So David instead has him murdered. The root of David. Why would Jesus refer to himself as these titles. Why would he do that? It's so that you would know that your belonging in God's family isn't based on your record of purity, but it's based on Jesus' grace. It's not based on your ability to fix your life, but it's based on his healing power to bring restoration to your broken sexual past. By using two stories like this, Jesus is saying there is not a thing anyone in this room could have done that would exclude them from being a part of God's family. Because your inclusion isn't based on what you've done, but it's based on what was done for you. The third title that John uses of Jesus in Revelations 5 comes in verse 6. When Jesus is referred to the lamb that was slaughtered. How could Jesus be the Lion of Judah and the Root of David only if he was the Lamb who was slaughtered? To take away the sins of the world. To take your sexual brokenness and to take the penalty of that on himself so that you could experience his grace and belonging in a family. Knowing that you have a significance that could never be threatened. Knowing that you have a love that you have always longed for. Knowing that you have a joy and pleasure in God that can't ever fade. That is what our slaughtered lamb, the eternal King Jesus, immortal, invisible, glory to him, God did for you. So you are carrying into this room a broken, tattered record of sexual sin. And so am I. And so is everyone else in this room. But we also carry in another record the record of Jesus' righteousness on our behalf when he in the desert resisted the temptation of the evil one so that you could have a record of perfection, 
so that when God looked at you, he doesn't see your broken sexual past, but instead sees Jesus' righteousness for you. That is the king that we have. That is the grace we can experience. And so now the solution to our broken sexual lives is not to minimize the severity of sin. It's not to resolve to try harder next time. It's to allow God's grace to first heal us, restore us, and then from a place of belonging to God, seek to walk in purity. Allow his grace to transform us into people who are marked by integrity. Let's pray. God, it was in the beginning that you created the heavens and the earth. And God, you are the sovereign creator of all things. And in that perfect design, you established for humanity the gift of sex, the gift of the intimacy we are designed to experience within the marriage context. And yet, God, we rejected your design for our lives and as a result have continued to experience the consequence of our sin. But Jesus, it was this broken world that you looked at and you said, I will be the ox that goes to the slaughter. I will be the deer that goes to the trap. I will allow my liver to be pierced by the wrath of God. I will be the bird that darts into the snare so that these humans wouldn't experience the penalty of their sin. They want to experience their life being taken from them, but I would experience my life being taken from me. So that it wouldn't be the highway to Sheol that they experienced, but the path to heaven. And it wouldn't be the chambers of death that they experienced, but the throne room of God. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are and what you did on our behalf by becoming the slaughtered lamb so that men like Judah and men like David and women who are broken sexually can be restored by your grace. God, you, look, you left heaven and you said to us, I have searched for you and I have found you, my daughter. I have found you, my son, in your state of brokenness. But by my grace, you can experience forgiveness and healing. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So that you now are indwelt by the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead. And that by that spirit and by that grace, you can begin to live a life marked by holiness. God, let us be a church that responds to your grace by a holiness of life. That trusts in your sovereign design for our sexuality. God, let us remember daily that there is no condemnation for those in Christ and let us let, allow that to transform us into people of integrity. Amen.